Welcome to the Bartender Atlas podcast. My name is Josh Lindley. I'm your host. Today, we are talking with a real force to be reckoned with in the service industry. Her name is Christina Vieira. Her and I have been friends for a long time. She is a Torontonian, well, actually a Mississaugan. We talk a lot about that. We talk a little bit about her helping out her parents at church when she was young, her history on a debate team, which if you've ever hung out with Christina, makes perfect sense. She justifies everything she does, even a little bit of street medicine, bartending on boats. There's a lot of stories here. Here we are, Christina Vieira on the Bartender Atlas podcast. All right, so Christina Vieira, who has been spending a lot of time uh, at your parents' house, so I feel like a lot of this stuff is going to be fresh. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Mississauga, so it's basically like um, a little suburb of Toronto, like a big suburb. I think it technically gets to be the sixth largest city in Canada, but I think a city is a little bit of a loose term when you use it for that. It's still very much like big malls, like big, a lot of traveling in between different places, but I'm mostly grew up in Streetsville, which is a cute little part of Mississauga. Streetsville, for anyone listening, is probably the one area of Mississauga that legit feels like a town or a city or a community. Yeah, it's the home of the Bread and Honey Festival. So you get <laughs> bread with honey on it, and there's uh, there's pie competitions. That's also, I mean, that's canceled this year, obviously. Uh, there's like a hockey rink. It, it's kind of like what you would think think a suburb in Canada looks like, at least. Right. And then the rest of Mississauga is high-rise apartment buildings and highways, or? Uh, sprawl. A lot of homes. Some parts are apartment buildings. A lot of homes, though. A lot of, like, yards. Lots of parks, though. One thing that when I moved downtown, I kind of noticed is the community centers in Mississauga are actually a lot nicer, which is probably isn't that surprising, but a lot of immigrants moved there and never moved anywhere else. So I think when I was growing up, it's something like 70% of the city has never actually, like was born outside of the country. And a lot of them had went on to have kids in the country. And then the mayor of Saga, Hazel McCallion, was in power for something like 40 years, something really crazy, because she was kind of the only mayor that anyone who moved to the country knew. And everyone was like, ah, she'll do. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, her reign of terror. But she's fine. <laughs> I went a, to the school she, named after her. She's a nice old lady, though, right? Like, I think she, I think went towards the end, she had a little bit of a corruption scandal. Okay. But I also think no one cared. Yeah. Like, I think everyone was like, eh, you know what? 40 years of growth, like, <laughs> you're you're allowed a little something on the side. Like you, you take take the good with the bad, and if the bad doesn't outweigh the good, then whatever. Yeah, you're cool. like uh, you lived a long life. Uh, so, what kind of school did you go to, other than one named after uh, the mayor of the town you grew up in? What kind of school was it? Yeah, so I I went to school in Mississauga until I went to high school, and then in high school. Or going into high school, I could have gone to the, like, super cool gifted school. But then I also had applied for the scholarship to go to this all-girls private school in Toronto, and I'd gotten it. So I ended up commuting uh, from Saga to Toronto every day for high school. How long of a commute was that? uh, Depending on route, 
basically anywhere between an hour to two hours each way. Uh, you take the GO train, um, when the GO train was running, which is like our, our like nicer commuter train, there's plugs and tables. And then I would take that to the subway and then take subway, uh, the next like half hour of that trip. So coming home, it usually wasn't as convenient because someone would have had to pick me up from the go train station. So I usually took one to two buses, Mississauga transit buses from the subway. So suffice to say, ever since I could control how I travel, I was very much over taking public transit. Right. Yeah, that's reasonable. Um, so, but in elementary school, what kind of stuff did you get into when you were a kid? Did you do any extracurricular stuff or was there anything that really leapt out at you as a kid? Like a kid kid? Like, yeah, like a kid kid. Uh, I was pretty lame. So I I did piano. So I did piano for about 12 years. I did up to my grade nine, uh, right before getting my ear. I really can choose to get your ARCT. I was like, nope, that's a no from me. And then I write a lot. Um, my dad's also super into reading. So we would go to the library, probably check out anywhere between like five to 20 books, probably try to read as much of the books as possible while at the library and then take the rest and often return them a little bit late. But I did a lot of... I did a lot of reading. I wasn't a particularly physical kid. Like I had a lot of friends, but I had asthma, and I was just I was just very in my head. So, reading and writing, making up little stories, and playing piano, and that kind of ate up a lot of time. I mean, for a six-year-old. Yeah, a lot of alone time. Yeah, I, I was always. I like. I mean, it was weird because my the original neighborhood I grew up in, almost everyone was around the same age, which. I mean, maybe it's just because no one seems to be having kids right now or what real estate looks like, but I think on our crescent, maybe every other house had a kid that was either my age or like a year within it. And then a lot of the houses had really similarly aged kids to my younger brother and also similarly aged kids to my older brothers. So it kind of felt like, you know, when you watch those 90s and 80s children's movies and you're kind of like, why are all these kids the exact same fucking age? Um, it's kind of like that. That was actually so, your life. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, what was nice was we, all those people's, like everyone's parents kind of had this unspoken rule that you could go and play in the front yard or garage of any of the kids, as long as you could be seen from your house. Mm-hmm. So, and that night it was kind of nice, especially in the summer because everyone would just kind of be out on their streets and, and just letting their kids just, just play. Like it just wasn't this kind of stay in your house, be alone type thing. But that being said, when left to my own devices, even if I was like with kids, I was often really excited to just read, <laughs> like read on the porch, uh, read at the park. Uh, yeah. Things like that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Mississauga where you grew up. It's very uh, densely populated with immigrants and first generation Canadians. So yeah. I'm, I'm now picturing going on the, uh, idea of the tv show where it's this gaggle of kids that are running around in the streets was it a perfectly like uh every possible ethnic background was represented as well in this crew or or was it sort of segregated at all no no like it was like it was kind of what you you picture like it was just kind of every every group you can imagine like my best friend across the street uh her family was super 
Newfoundlander. And then um, my next door neighbor there, Portuguese, she actually was like my nanny as well for a bit. Um, then like, yeah, like Chinese, like Persian, like, yeah, just kind of everything. I didn't, I, I think, I mean, I don't have hard stats. It could just be where I, I grew up in Mississauga, but I always felt that Toronto itself was a bit more segregated than the suburbs are. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, I think, maybe it's just by virtue of, like, who moves into neighborhoods, or maybe it's just because all the neighborhoods were developing, like, in terms of all these builds. So it's not when you're buying new homes in the 70s, 80s, 90s, like, you don't really know who's buying it beside you until they're there. Uh where, and I noticed, I mean, granted, it's really hard for me to tell because also when I was in Toronto, I was going to a private school, so the, I was naturally going to something that was a little bit less diverse than what I was used to. But yeah, no, it was it was quite diverse, and there wasn't as many, from my recollection, like as many groups that were strictly around, along ethnic lines. I mean, aside from like things that were kind of obvious, like I was used to about like a third of the school having to fast during Ramadan. So obviously you're going to be like in that group during that time. Mm-hmm. Things like that. Yeah. Um, your family's also pretty into church. Yeah. Quite religious. Yeah. Yeah. And so did that affect groups you hung out with as well, as far as, you know, ethnic backgrounds and different religious backgrounds with your family being into church, was there sort of differences there and different groups of kids you might hang out with at different times? So our church was also pretty, like, pretty multicultural. So it was a lot of Caribbean people. And then I guess I want to say a lot of Filipino people. Um, And then the older people of the church, it was originally, like, a pretty white church. And then I guess through, it's evangelical, so I guess, like, through their outreach, or I don't really know exactly why, but they ended up gaining a lot of Caribbean and like Filipino, mostly congregants. So the younger people, the families were all more so of that persuasion, but then all the older members of the church were like old Irish, like old Newfies, like old Scottish people. Right. Um, Yeah. So that was it. Like, I mean, for church, because my mom works at the church, I was always kind of like tailing her. So helping set up things, um, lots of, lots of, uh, breakfasts and dinners and lunches and little fellowship gatherings and refreshments and church, a lot of big churches. It's kind of constant for anyone who grew up in a church. Mm-hmm. And my mom would be one of the people who had to organize them as the administrator of the church or always locking up. So then I was kind of like a, a little responsible sidekick, also helping lock up, making sure everything is turned off. I would spend my days off from school at church. I would like help count offerings, um, help put together like the bulletins. And then with the kids, like I kind of went to youth group, but I wasn't super into it. Uh, I taught Sunday school. So once I was like 14, I could teach Sunday school and I always liked children. For a while I thought, whatever I'd end up doing would be with actual kids or involve kids in some way. So I, it's pretty fair to say that working with or often with drunk adults was not foreseen as the plan. Um, but yeah, I was never somebody who got super into like youth group. 
Uh, I did a few things. I also just don't think I was pretty. I was like, even at youth group, I don't think I was quite cool enough. Uh, the church was in Rexdale and everyone kind of knew just they had a whole like pop culture and everything literacy from their schools. A lot of the kids who went to youth group went to school around there and I just didn't have it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I mean, as we already talked about, even when you were hanging out with a group of kids, you were often kind of hanging out in the corners on your own anyhow. Yeah. Yeah, like, I was, I feel like, yeah, I was always good at, like, playing with kids and getting along with kids and all of that, like, but I also just was someone who, I think I've just always needed a little bit of time to recharge, so, for a recess, sometimes I would just play with the kids and it would be fine, and then sometimes I'd be like, no, I'm gonna, I'm just good over here, but it's kind of funny because I think I kind of do that now still, even though I have a pretty social job, mm-hmm. like, I have a lot of friends to choose from and people who are legitimately like close to me but every so often i'm just i'm just good to be alone (laughs) and Uh, it's not like a personal thing so speaking of being alone you've got your crazy commutes by the time you start going to high school this private girls school that you went to and i only know this from you and i hanging out you've got your time back and forth your your solo time but then you join a team and as we mentioned you have asthma and you weren't necessarily active but the team that you joined was a debate team Yeah, I mean, okay, I so I did debating. I did, I actually did do rugby in high school. Yeah, because I was like, dude, you need to be more physical. And I think my parents were a little bit protective of me not doing a ton of activities because I had really bad lungs as a kid. Mm-hmm. So I guess I had a really bad bout with pneumonia and. Like, not to be on a tangent, but I guess two of my dad's sisters have died from pneumonia nice. as kids. Yeah. So I think there was just, like, too much, like, a, a huge hesitance. And then, I mean, you're usually not too upset with having a kind of bookish nerd child, right? Like, a sweet little nerd child. So that that was fine. But I did rugby, but I also did debating, and I did model UN. And I did public affairs club. What else? I think those are like Model UN debating were like the big ones in public affairs. I'm trying to think. Oh, I did drama. I did plays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were you performing or were you writing or doing a little performing. bit of everything? Yeah. Performing. Yeah, yeah. Acting. And so going to this high school was, you sort of mentioned it, the high school wasn't quite as diverse as where you grew up. No, no. But you felt like you adjusted well? Did you ever feel, you know, outside at all? Uh, I think, well, so my cousin went there. Um, she's like five years older than me. So we were never there at the same time. She graduated the year before I started. But that kind of gave a bit of a primer. And I already knew a bit what to expect, mm-hmm. which I think helps. I don't think I, it, it wasn't as... The, it, there was a culture shock for sure, but I also kind of expected it. I feel like there's enough even little teen movies and out of fish TV shows that kind of are like, this is what you'll expect. And then you probably build it up a bit. Yeah. Um, no, like, I mean, I think overall I had a pretty good time in high school. Yeah. I with yeah. Like I think, I think it's kind of funny because I know a lot of people don't have a good time in high school. I thought that one of our teachers used to say every girl should go to an all-girls school. 
and every boy should go to an all-girls school. Um, and I've <laughs> always thought that there, people build up this idea that like women are really mean to each other. And I know that it can happen. And I know that I think there's like a year, two years under me that they did have a lot of bullying, but that was like one of the first times at the school that they had to deal with it like so widespread. And I also think like the slow advent of social media and things really, really, uh, and technology really exacerbated that, but taking away the teenage boys and, um, we weren't allowed to wear jewelry unless we had a, uh, like, unless we actually had a talk with the head of the senior school about why that, (laughs) that Tiffany bracelet or whatever, like had sentimental value but you couldn't just wear jewelry you couldn't wear makeup uh we had a uniform that was didn't have a lot of flexibility for choice and was like awfully constructed like the shirts were men's shirts for some godforsaken reason yeah um and so there's little things like that that equalize parts of it a bit um so yeah it was it, it was definitely a switch i think being able to go to a church on the weekends, have other friends from like ever, all the years before I'd gone to the school in grade nine, kind of kept me more in balance. And then I went to U of T, like University of Toronto after, which again is super diverse too. So it mel- it more felt like a blip than like a blip of whiteness. I don't know. <laughs> but they had a <laughs> That sounds residence. charmed. Yeah, there was a huge residence, um, which was mostly Asian students, uh, mostly Korea and Hong Kong, and then a decent amount of Russians that all seemed to be from more Siberia land. Right. So I guess like oil or who knows money. Um, And yeah, I mean, the rest of the school was, I mean, skewed relatively blonde and tall. I'm 5'8". And I I didn't feel tall right. in high school. Yeah, I thought it was like a normal height <laughs> throughout high school until I graduated. Uh, and then you mentioned you went to the University of Toronto as well. What did you study? I studied uh, math and English literature and philosophy. That's a full course load. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, math you can get an arts degree in, which I think people don't realize. It's, right. it's always it's always been an arts degree. Or an ability to do an arts degree. It's not an incredibly useful combination mm-hmm. unless you want to prove that you know how to think. That's really the only, like, you know how to analyze. It's really the only thing that you get to prove from that combination. You're good at sitting and thinking and analyzing. But, yeah, I mean, U of T, I debated as well. And that was really the only place I got friends. U of T is a very hard school to make friends. It's a very big community population and it's just a very sprawling campus. And there's no real, there isn't a huge student life compared to other universities. So I joined debate club because my friends, I had actually one friend in particular that I'd made in grade 12, the high school national debating championships. She went to a different school and, uh, she went to U of T and then she made me go to these meetings and then I ended up competing and judging and helping run external tournaments and, and, and internal tournaments actually a bit too, I guess one year, which are essentially when we'd have different speakers come in and yeah, like that was kind of university. 
And all so, of them are lawyers now. <laughs> Almost all of them are lawyers. It's actually wild. And uh, so shortly after university, with all of your now lawyer friends, you started working in the service industry, yeah? Uh, during university. During so, university? Yeah, I moved out of my parents' house around first year. Uh, just like I couldn't handle being at home and uh, for like a variety of reasons. And I was just like, I need to get out. And my older brothers had moved out when they were like teenagers. There was a few reasons why it like, really wasn't practical. And I think it's also easier for for men, boys. I guess they're boys when they're 16, 17. But to move out and to like hack it as a teenager and still be kind of normal. Um, so I moved out when I was like 17, 18, I guess 18 or so. And, uh, yeah, it's hard to get a job, where, especially based on minimum wages back in the day, uh, where you can make enough money and also remotely have hours that can support a course load. Mm-hmm. Other than if you kind of luck out for certain types of, I guess, like receptionist jobs or whatever. And I, I didn't really want to take a loan. So, yeah, I started slowly working in service and and then it's the rest is the rest is fate did you feel like once you started working in service it was sort of uh reminiscent of helping your mom out at at church and fellowship meetings for sure like i i I do think churches are a lot more similar to bars than and restaurants than people give them credit for and i think they fill a lot of the same holes in people's lives, like places to go, places to meet people, um, activities to do. If you meet people, a lot of people who are really active in churches, I I think a big part of it is actually the social aspect, and that's what's hard to take away from them. Um, I originally wanted to be more in the kitchen. I really liked cooking. This whole quarantine time has kind of made me realize that I still like cooking, but people don't really want to hire uh, like a a girl. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's a lot easier to get hired as, as a host than to get hired as a prep person. And I didn't really know the difference in terms of money or what like upward mobility would be either. Again, like it wasn't looking for a career or it really wasn't even about looking for a lot of money. Like it wasn't like I had people who were like, yeah, I make all this money bartending. It was really just, to make money to like pay rent and pay for food. Yeah. It wasn't so much a, a passion project at that point. No, like I thought it might be nice to be in a kitchen because I was always really good at cooking and would do these like elaborate meals for my family, uh, every so often. So I just assumed that there would be some crossover, but you like so many places wouldn't even consider Used, like for those entry level jobs, I did like maybe one or two for a couple summers, like helping out with, um, like I was like a dishwasher and I, I did prep cook stuff for this catering company on the boats mm-hmm. in Toronto for like a summer or whatever. But essentially, it, it kind of got to the point where I was like, uh, if I'm going to make, if I'm going to like take part time jobs in restaurants and bars or whatever, it's going to be. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably be more front of house. Kind of have to be strategic about what part-time jobs you're taking, right? Yeah, and like to be honest, like people don't really hire a lot of women for kitchen jobs. So no. you, the idea of advocating for yourself to make eight dollars an hour and get yelled at, <laughs> and probably not be particularly good, 
I mean, I guess you're still making, I guess, $6 an hour and getting yelled at, but you might make tips. And you're also just going to get hired. So that was that was a whole thing. Um, so you started as a host. Yeah. Uh, you started as a host as far as service industry jobs go. Uh, what path did you go from there? Obviously, you were trying to do kitchen stuff. You did a little, but by the time you actually landed uh, appropriately in the service industry, I guess, yeah. uh, you, you were a host and then you moved around a little bit. Tell me about some of the different places that you worked and different styles yeah. of service that you um, sort of uh, you know built your skills with. Yeah, so I guess, okay, the the service industry trajectory um first back of house job i was technically a salad tosser at lettuce eatery uh which is now known as the chain freshie which is very successful mm-hmm. now and i would work i guess two or three hour shifts and i would literally have tongs and toss salads and now they do like a shaking method that seems way better but like you're your arms and wrists and your forearms would hurt a lot. So that was, I did that for like a month or so. And then I worked on the boats in the harbor and I worked mostly with the catering company that was associated with these like three boats. But then towards the end of the summer, when summer students and people start to drop like flies, either getting fired or just not showing up for work. Cause when you're, when you're 18, you just don't show up for work sometimes. Yep. Um, <laughs> I, uh, Picked up some, I ended up picking up some shifts on the as a bartender. So I kind of had jumped straight into bartending, but like bartending in this context is loose. It's like often booze cruises, but sometimes it's like a grade eight grad, a weird, a weird wedding, um, like a weird office party. It's always weird. I think most people who rent out boats in the harbor, it like attracts a certain type of person, but it's also oddly expensive to rent out a boat. You basically take somebody and you lock them in a room for four hours, five hours. And a lot of these were, were cash bars. So you could sell like 17 grand, like 18 grand in these, in these like four hour booze cruises. And the, the best money shift typically was always the 10 a.m. Uh, boat cruise that happened. So government is like this nightclub that used to exist in Toronto. And it's really massive or it was really massive. I think it's like a condo now. And it was open from... Like till 6 a.m. I think on the weekends, and a lot of people would go there till six, and then kind of like chill in parking lots, maybe go to McDonald's, but still more or less be in their clothes or like change in the parking lot, and they would buy these relatively expensive tickets to this boat cruise the next the Sunday morning, and it would usually be the same headliners, like usually these bigger names in in trance, and we would just work these cruises and you'd sell water and freezies and the occasional like rum and Coke or vodka soda. And you'd make like $200 plus, which felt like crazy money back then, especially like you're making $5 an hour. And sometimes you would just do a wedding and no one would ever tip you. And right. that, that was where I learned how to like cut off people. Uh, that was kind of where I had learned about, I saw a lot of people OD that summer. Wow. So not like D, but still, uh, but yeah. So like one of the first cruises, uh, we we're behind the bar and we're like jazz. Cause you feel like you're so cool that you got to go behind the bar. Cause you're like a child. Uh, 
I think, okay, this is probably the second time I bartend. The first time somebody ordered a liquid cocaine, like also on a, on a, one of the boats, but a different boat. They're all in by the same people. And then I reached behind me uh, to grab the bottle of Goldschlager. And I don't know if you remember, like when you're young and you get these jobs and then getting these jobs means you have to like buy clothes you normally wouldn't have. Yeah, totally. And, and then they're like not well-made at all. <laughs> they're terrible clothes, yeah. but it like means a lot to you that you had to buy it. So you're like super in your head about it and like uncomfortable shoes. So anyway, this is only significant because I reached behind to grab the Goldschlager from the bottom and I picked it up and the entire bottom of it fell out and just poured all over my, my shoes and my pants. And that was like one of the first orders of the night. So it just smelled like cinnamon. So anyway, day two, we're still, we're still going to be a bartender. And I was with this girl, Alana, and we're like so excited. And this guy orders like a couple drinks for her, not a big round. I don't want to say like two rum and Cokes or something like that. And she makes them and everything was super measured because we had to pay out of our tips if we were short. They yeah. did like really crazy inventory every day. So you, if anything, you really learned how to short pour. And she makes it. And then the guy gives her like a bag of Coke. Whoa. And she's is this, like, what? Is this and one of those 10 a.m. shifts? I, this isn't a 10 a.m. Okay. <laughs> the, the 10 a.m. were all about G. So they would like get huge bags of G that they confiscate from people. Oh my god! Um, and actually, that pays. That actually plays into the story. So <laughs> anyway, this guy gives her a big coke, and she's like, "Um, it's like we're like children. We have no, we have no clue." And he's like, "Oh, don't worry, it's worth more than this." And then he just kind of like breezes away, not a care in the world. So and so then she's like, "I don't know what to do," and like it's funny now because we were more concerned with the idea that we didn't get payment for the, for the, uh, actual drinks. Not like, I think weren't quite processing that he had like tried to pay with drugs. Cause I don't like, we just didn't know street value or anything. And also like you were saying, when you do your cash out, you have to pay out on any, you know, booze that's been poured that hasn't yeah. been rung in. And like, do you just put this bag in with your cash out? And like, <laughs> is that part of balancing your till? Yeah. So anyway, she, we're trying to figure out like what, what is like the closest to an adult to go to. And then she goes like, all of this is just so dumb in retrospect. So she goes to like the DJ and he's like, I'll figure it out. So obviously <laughs> he like just disappears with it. Uh, which these are all super rookie moves, but later on in the boat cruise, somebody, starts ODing from GHB because it's a, it's a depressant. So uh, at least from my personal boat bar attending medic experience, uh, people tend to seize when they're ODing on it. And that bag of Coke ended up being kind of shoved up that person's nose to counteract it in this weird street medicine type way. Because the weird thing on the boats is a lot of people are doing drugs and they're drinking. But um, you're not very close to a hospital, obviously. Yeah. Like, you can call a police boat. Police boats can get there very quickly. Police boats hate being called, uh, especially this is close to the summer of the gun or whatever. So they really didn't feel like it was worth their time unless there was something violent happening. And uh, so, yeah, you would see things. You'd sometimes get people, like, get they called in to look after them. But they get, that adds a kind of scary 
aspect to being on the cruise is because if something happens to someone, you're kind of stuck out there or the crew has to deal with it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the boats. And then obviously like I wasn't a real bartender after that summer. I bartended. Um, but, and I was actually going to be pretty good at liquor inventory cost controls because I think most people don't work in environments like that. The first time or for a whole summer. Yeah. And I ended up, getting a job at forget about it supper club as the outdoor hostess. Cause I really wasn't qualified enough to, to get a actual bartending job. And I didn't want to work in a club. I didn't really know what clubs were anyway. And I, so I worked at forget about it supper club as an outdoor hostess. So it's in theater district and the outdoor hostess is someone who convinces mostly tourists to come in. And I did that for like a whole winter until they let me kind of work my way up to being a busser uh, and then eventually a server. Like that's where I learned how to open wine. And I also, because I knew how to do accounting things enough um, from helping my mom for the church and everything, I would help with the accounts payable on Mondays when the restaurant was closed. And, and yeah. And then after that, I ended up at Lee restaurant Um I left forget about it for a few reasons. Like one, I mean, it wasn't like an awesome job. The owner is this guy, Frank D'Angelo, who's a crazy megalomaniac who just starts companies named after himself, like has paid for these weird movies that star aging Hollywood stars. Uh, they're like, I think one of them's called like original mobster or something like that. Uh, one is like called Sicilian vampire or something like that. He's like a caricature of an awful restaurant owner on Thursdays. He used to have a band that he'd do Sinatra covers and he's awful at singing, like not like funny, bad, just awful. And so I would try to hustle people to come and sit down and fill up the patio and fill up inside and be like, I'm killing it because I was really working hard for my 0.5% of a tip out. And, uh, and people would just leave because he was so awful and they, and we weren't allowed to turn down the volume because it obviously was his passion project. Yeah. So then, yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, left there eventually. And then I was kind of getting harassed by this guy who worked there, but the manager wouldn't really deal with it. And it wasn't like I felt unsafe. I just didn't want to get weird angry aggressive this like facebook messages and then have to work with a person and get told that maybe i should just go on a date with him because i wasn't dating anyone so i ended up leaving and i ended up at lee and that was around when i was like maybe i like food and drink and i don't like just where i'm at and maybe i want to focus on that a bit more so i was there for around two years ended up being lead server and then managing um yeah, and that was interesting because that was towards the end of the recession. Um, so that was around when the, the kind of nicer restaurants had eked through, and Lee was definitely one of those. And like we did a dollar corkage at Lee early in the week at that time. So, um, and then eventually, uh, Chef was on, like Susser was on Top Chef Masters in the US. And that was a pretty big thing. Like that brought in a lot more people. People would fly in for the night to eat there. Um, and yeah, and then that, like, I mean, around now we're like 2011, 2010. Uh, I think obviously no one has a crystal ball, but 
it is it was interesting to remember how hard it was to get a job or how competitive it was in hospitality around 20 2009 to 2011 in Toronto yeah even even though we weren't theoretically as affected by the recession and I think some of us really remember that time and can kind of see probably some trends of what it'll be like um maybe after reopen and I don't but a lot of people who are younger like maybe in their like mid-20s they kind of only remember this like boom period of restaurants and bars mm-hmm. where you can just walk in and you immediately get to train in the position you want to train in like the amount of people i know who never really bar backed yeah. or or bust or hosted or really like any of these like entry-level jobs prepped dishwashed like if you're a certain age and if you've been working in hospitality a while it's pretty normal to have done those jobs for not for like two months for like a year yeah two years yeah uh longer and like truly feel like you worked your way up and a lot of people who are in their mid-20s they just became a bartender yeah and uh or they just became a server and they were barely serving and then they just became a som and they maybe like know about a lot about wine and definitely probably more than me still but not as much about customers yeah you know? sure yeah i'm not saying everyone has to know how to do like street medicine on a boat but <laughs> no, it's it's almost better if no one has to experience or live through that. Uh, yeah. Um, and so you had worked at Lee and you're getting through this boom and then you started working at a place, uh, at least as far as Toronto is concerned, that really changed the way that people were dining out. You worked at 416 Snack Bar for a long time. Yeah. So I left Lee around like in. 2011 or so I kind of chilled out for a bit and then I ended up working at Grace and that's where I met um Dusty Gallagher who also did the first menu for 4 and 6 and that's where I met Adrian Rubinsky who's one of the owners for 4 and 6 and Grace was actually really nice to work at um because you kind of go from this big place with a lot of systems and this kind of old school mentality where you more or less bully your other staff members in order to get ahead. Um, And then you don't really have regulars. You have some people who are VIPs, but you don't really, the whole purpose of places like that wasn't supposed to create all these connections. And then Grace was very much the opposite. Like Grace was small and like 30 seats, I think, maybe max 40. Mm -hmm. And it had a courtyard. It's a... anyone who's been to Toronto it's now Dilo they actually covered the courtyard which makes us all really sad uh and uh, it used to be a house like and it was light in there and a lot of restaurants in Toronto aren't light it was like white and light blue and it just had mostly older people or industry people and no one really in between industry people and or people who could be our parents and it you just kind of learned I like really learned a little bit of how to chill out I learned how to like talk to, and I learned what a regular was, which I think up until that point in time, I never had really experienced true regulars, uh, people you'd see every week and have to like create a relationship with, not just a dining experience for. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's where I met Adrian at the same time. And when they opened four on six, they were open six days a week and they basically had one friend person they could trust, uh, take one day. 
right. in the beginning because they didn't know how busy it was going to be and what it'd be like. So I was Mondays right. and that was also fun and different because I've never truly worked anywhere casual at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I never worked somewhere that was like as barry. Like I really liked restaurants and like I'd entered thinking I like wanted to work with food and everything. Um, four and six had sold a lot of food and it was like one of the only places when it opened that did late night food in Toronto that wasn't Chinatown. Um, and I feel like I always have to add that in. Cause I think sometimes we're like, it's the only place that didn't do late night. And like, no, Chinatown exists. <laughs> like it existed. Like faux pasteur existed if you want late night faux. Um, but if you wanted more of like a, a, a bar experience, uh, that, it was different from like that kind of bright lights, plastic tablecloth, mm-hmm. Chinatown like experience. You didn't really get it. Like you kind of just chose after 10 or 11 PM, maybe midnight. Like you just didn't eat anymore in Toronto. There weren't even a lot of places that you could get like a poutine late at night yeah. or a pizza. Yeah. So a, a very okay. long time ago around this time. Well, yeah. Earlier than this, even I remember a friend of mine, uh, saying that there is never a reason to eat pizza pizza before 1 a.m. Uh, because after 1 a.m., pizza pizza is basically the only thing you could get at that point in Toronto. Yeah, I remember going to the social and like early days, and I'd go on like Mondays, like the cheap night, it was like $2 drinks. Yeah. And being so hungry, and just like, especially in that area now, it's funny because. It, it's so much more gentrified than it was like, I guess, 10 years ago when it, like the Drake existed, but it was just kind of like the Drake <laughs> like as the only gentrifying thing. And I just remember being so hungry because you're like sweaty and you dance, whatever. And there was like literally no way you could eat unless you went to the grocery store and like drunk grocery shopped and brought groceries home and cooked, which I would do. I'd like buy pierogies. Um, yeah, so four and six was good because they had the guys who own it, Dave and Adrian. They had a very similar working background as well, like working at Buka and uh, Lee and a Grano and a few other great places. Uh, same with Dusty in terms of food, but then the actual vibe of it was very different. It was just like well, and the early days were like much more raucous and just like we hand wrote chits. For the first six months, we didn't have a POS. So everything was handwritten, including all the orders to the kitchen. Um, we worked really collaboratively with the kitchen. Like, the kitchen got really good tips. Uh, but they also had to, like, run food. And yeah. it, it, it was just very different. And then more and more places opened up that served late. And then a lot of places stopped serving late because it's it's annoying in its own way. It, it drives up labor. You really have to commit to it. Um, but, yeah, I was there for around around five years and I think I left in 2016 uh, on the five-year anniversary yeah and it was around that time I think um it's fair to say 416 snack bar was definitely um industry heavy spot too as well yeah yeah so it originally it was like mostly industry or like kind of creative cool kids um and then it slowly got busier and busier and about two years in was when you could truly say it would be busy from like 5 p.m. when it opened straight through till two like early days you it was more of a late night when the sun goes down especially in the summer like 9 p.m. 
then it would fill up, especially when the DJs started, because there's DJs or a band um, most nights. And what was great about it was, I mean, what it was like what we used to deal with or go through, where you work this heavy service, then you just kind of eat it, especially at these like nice restaurants, and uh, and you worked these long hours and you're tired and uh, you're hungry and you just want like a, maybe you just want like a nice drink and there are very few places you could get like a nice bottle of wine or you could just crush vodka sodas and bourbon if that's like what you needed to do and where you could get a bite that was actually pretty well made and and yeah you could just kind of treat yourself a bit so we'd get a lot of that industry crowd after and I met a lot of people through that and that was where I learned how, about regulars and creating relationships in a completely different way too. It's one thing when you might see this like couple in their fifties or sixties twice a month, and it's com- something completely different when you might see somebody like four times a week, right. like arguably more than the other people that you work with. Yeah, uh, there's some heavy, heavy regulars. I think even now uh, that go there. And so. You work at 416. Obviously, like you said, you're making these regulars and they're all industry people. uh, And it's a lot of people, you know, around that time was when I know you started entering competitions and whatever. We don't really need to talk too much about the competitions you did. However, what I do want to talk about is once you start winning these competitions and once everyone knows you as being a competent and friendly bar manager and, and bartender, you started using the platform that you had to start directing people's attention towards a bunch of different charities. And this is something that you've taken on in a couple different perspectives uh, with Nellie's, which I know you've done a lot of different events for them. Side duties is the name of your always evolving charity sort of company that involves things industry related. You do jiggle ball, which also benefits Nellie's. And then you're, you're one of the organizers of speed rack Canada as well. When did you decide was it a million years ago or were you just waiting to have the appropriate platform to start doing this kind of charitable work? Yeah. So at 416, I um, started doing a snacks for kid thing at the last Sunday of every month uh, where I want to say 15% of our sales went to a local school's uh, snack program, mm-hmm. snack bar, snacks, um, which actually adds up quite a bit. And essentially it paid for like a classroom snacks for the month or something like that. Uh, I had pitched it to the guys, tried to crunch the numbers of why I thought that day was good. Everything they were into it. Guests were into it. It's actually why I have um, this mother and daughter um, regulars that I really started speaking to because they worked in schools with kids and they saw it and they would always come in, but like we still talk now and ended up working with the daughter on a Black Panther fundraiser, which raised money to uh, with these like local DJ and uh, music group to send a few classes of kids to see Black Panther when it came out, uh, mostly Black and POC kids. Uh, so yeah, like that was something that kind of created relationships then. But when I left Four and Six around 2016, and I was working, uh, I was working at Harvard Room part-time uh which is like when we like more like truly truly met i started doing comps more not so much to win i didn't have an expectation of winning uh but more to meet people and to create more of a dynamic because i felt like i knew a lot of people in the restaurant scene and wine scene and beer scene uh from my time purchasing and managing like a very busy industry spot but like cocktail bartender is like 
uh, that side of the industry. Like I just didn't know. Like they, I, they don't, they didn't go to my place. So they didn't really go to the places I went to. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of insular. And even though I think now that scene is a lot less insular than it was a few years ago. Oh, I, five I still, years ago, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I still think that mixology side could could play better with other people. Like in, in terms of how you see the other little segments. In, in interact with each other but it could also just be that a lot of places that are known for cocktail programs are not necessarily as known always for food and or wine and beer so i think maybe those connections between them are not uh, as strong as say when you're really deep into restaurant scene like you will naturally just meet a ton of chefs and people so anyway met a bunch of people and i loved doing uh charity endeavors and initiatives uh when i was at harvard room I was still working with these investors to open a bar and part of the bar was always going to have uh, items that went to charity. So it was always something in my head that I wanted. I just, I always felt that there was ways in which you could change your business model to, to help people. And I have always thought that in Canada, especially a lot of our hospitality community, we could be so connected to like culture and charitable endeavors and everything. And a lot of it is like very insular. And I think that's, that hurts us in the long run. And like, that isn't just doing charity, you know, that could be like, um, it could be like helping with kids snack programs at schools because we're good at food costing. It could just be like interacting more with the arts communities um, and providing more of a platform for that rather than just kind of buying your art at the beginning and getting a designer to do it and just calling it a day. Um, just like kind of living and breathing the city. So it was always something I wanted to do, but then I didn't end up opening a bar. So I, I still wanted to prove though, and it was something that I had to have a conversation with these investors about, uh, that doing charity work, one, people are into it. And two, I even can know how to do it in a way that like isn't losing money. You know, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people don't realize that the difference between a, like, a lot of people's fundraising model is they get as much donated as possible and they get it, including labor and they call it a day and they don't try to like crunch numbers of how they can make it work. And then they think the actual promotion of their free labor is the same as promoting an event or promoting an initiative. And at the end of the day, an event is an event, whether it's for profit or not. And a business model is a business model. And if you talk to people who run charities, the reason why Versa who runs Red Cross makes millions of dollars is because they have not only that ability to really crazily oversee and project manage, they also have networks in which, uh, like where they can help that cause too. So as I had this network of people when I was always into it and it seemed that people who like me were into things I did, it, it kind of came naturally to do different events. We had like the birthday party event to raise funds for like birthday parties or for kids in shelters, not just like my birthday party. Right. Uh, <laughs> Mother's day events that like raise diapers and formula for, for uh, mothers in need and children in need, um, like jiggle ball, the gel shot com, uh, neighborhood watch, which is like a good RuPaul's Drag Race viewing party. Um, just a just a variety, I guess, like the Black Panther thing. So like a variety of different events over over the years. And it's been pretty natural because it seems like people, I stagger them out a bit and it seems like people are into them. 
Uh, and I and I do think that they help not only the businesses that they might be hosted in, but I just think it's also like it's good to mix up a bit why you want people to come into your space and and the kinds of conversations you want to have with people. Yeah, and I, I think yeah. it's always something that I've always very much, and I mean, you touched on it a little bit, is the idea of rather than picking one day to do a thing and saying, okay, so we did this one thing, the way that you've always approached all of your charitable work is that you make it almost institutional and part of an entire uh, being rather than just an event. You know, it's it's never a one-off with you. You always have like a, a deeper plan as to how to involve charity components in any of the events that you do. And it's something that I've always thought was um, like it definitely a few steps beyond the way that most events are run and planned, especially when it's supposed to be something that is a benefit for something else. Yeah. Like I think, I, I think, I mean, anything that people want to do, if it's coming from a good place is good. But I think where a lot of missteps happen and I think I've had issues with it too, is when you don't want to get into a place where it's, it's getting a little bit martyry. Like, the amount of times people might do an event and they're like, and hey, no one showed up. And it's like, well, did you like, did you have a flyer? Like, did you have a DJ or like, did you have entertainment? Did you create an event that people want to go to? Or did you just, or is this a normal bar time at your bar and you're just taking $1 from every drink and $1 from every drink over the course of like a month uh, or a year can add up. But like, I mean, there's only so many of like one drink you make in a night. Unless that one dollar from every drink is like a vodka soda, and even then, like you're not you're not going to raise a ton of money. So maybe the amount of effort you're putting into that event, you could like put into something different, right? Like I think people don't always look at it that way. It's very much like I'm doing something good, and people need to buy in. And people actually don't have to buy into anything that you do, right? Like uh, you you should always have a way to to scale it or to have goals from what you want from it. And even for me, one thing I had to learn is, like, I had to stop working my events as much. There's no point in inviting all these people and, like, using your your broader network, and then you just don't talk to them. Yeah. <laughs> you don't thank them. You can't talk about the cause. Like, you're just you're just not present. Mm-hmm. And and that was that's a hard thing to learn, right? Like, we really fetishize in our industry this idea that, like, all hard work is good work. You know, and like all hard work pays off, which is not true. There's like ways to work smarter and not and being tired isn't like a it's not like a badge. Just yeah. like you're tired at the end of something meant that you did a good job. You could have done it super inefficiently or maybe you did a good job, but that wasn't the job that you were needed to do. Yeah. Um, we've been talking for about an hour, which makes this easily the longest bartender atlas podcast so far um, oh, sorry. <laughs> no no don't apologize it's great it's all really good information i'm going to wrap it up though uh, especially on this note and talking about different charity initiatives and you know styles of work and what people consider important work if anyone wants to reach out to you obviously you are one of the busiest people that i know in my life however if anyone wants to reach out to you and ask you more questions about this stuff or different angles uh as to how to approach different ways of work how do they do that yeah i mean i i like to just say if you reach out through social media especially like instagram now i I honestly probably pay more attention to like instagram dms and facebook and it's just my name uh, christina vera i actually do respond to people and try to help i do ask that sometimes people are patient because sometimes the asks are like are loaded right like what is the best 
like foundation that I can go to for like my my like aunt and need it's like uh, that I might that might not come right away uh I might have to look into that or ask some questions but generally speaking there um is is a good place to start or my email which is just my name christina vera dot pt at gmail.com and yeah I like to have conversations with people just about especially now like where industry I think is going and where people want to put their time and I think going forward it would be there's so many people with all these skills and talents and just ways in which we can not be insular and use this time to help our community which a lot of people are doing really really well right now but I, I think that will be very important in in the reopen this is amazing. Thank you so much for taking at like legitimately an hour to talk with me today. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. And being so open and sharing with everything. Thank you. Well, thanks, Josh. Yeah, uh, I guess I talked a lot. But, yeah, <laughs> no, 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 it's good. More. It's a podcast. You're supposed to talk a lot. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thank you. Thank you again to Christina Vieira for taking the time to talk. I hope you got as much out of that as I did that you being Christina or you the listener. Um, We're going to keep putting these out every two weeks, regardless of what's happening isolation-wise. If you have any ideas or suggestions or people that you think I should be talking to, you can reach out to me at Bartender Atlas on all forms of social media. Be well, everybody.